Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know what? This is going to be good. I'm looking forward to clearing up some of the misconceptions that we have about electric vehicles and battery technology. And I'm going to do that with Dan Blundell of Nano One. And it is good, I'll tell you. Plus, BT Global's Paul Beatty's promised some very attractive stocks. Now, he's not been a buyer, but now he says, you know what? Some of these stocks have been put on sale. And remember, his fund can play the market to go up or down. And after playing a lot of downs, he says, hey, have downed a couple that maybe it's time to take a longer term view of. And the commission looking into the declaration of the Emergency Act, well, it started, you know, and I'll tell you, I think the fireworks coming out of that are going to be fascinating, but it's my Goofy Award too. Plus, of course, I've got Victor. I've got Aussie. I've got one of the first honest quotes by an EU official on the energy mess, as well as a shocking stat every, every Canadian should be aware of. But first, just so you're clear, the whole point of what we're doing on Money Talks is to help you protect yourself from the fallout of the sovereign debt crisis, the rising cost of living, the energy crisis, and rising interest rates, which are all part of a growing monetary crisis, uh, featuring the massive decline in the purchasing power of our currency, including the loonie, of course, but it's worldwide. And there's actually no other reason to listen to the show. I'm not charming enough. I'm not humorous enough, and thank goodness it's a podcast. You, you would, otherwise, you'd know I'm not good-looking enough. But at the same time, let me tell you this. I, I've been doing this 40 years plus. The financial stakes have never been higher. And I'll tell you, the track record, and that's all that counts on Money Talk, speaks for itself. But that's the goal of Money Talks, to help protect you in this environment. But as the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You know, because I'll give you an example. I push relentlessly for people to lock in their borrowing, what, well, was since the summer, early fall of 2020. I've been recommending the U.S. dollar since 2014, but I don't know if everybody's taken action. It's the same with energy. Hey, come on, if you're worried about higher energy prices, then, you know, on Money Talks, we've been talking, or suggesting rather, talk to your financial advisor about quality Canadian oil and gas companies, and maybe you've got a three to five year time horizon. Or you could always buy the gasoline ETF. We're going to be talking about that in February because that's usually the timing. Don Vialo informs us on that. And then you sell it as it gets much stronger and the demand grows in the summer driving season. You know what? The point I've been trying to drive home on the podcast, on Twitter, on mikesmoneytalks.ca, et cetera, is that there's a lot more of this to come. The sovereign debt crisis, unfunded pension liabilities, the declining confidence in paper currencies, along with the massive shifts geopolitically. And just to reiterate something I said a couple of months ago, I can tell you I've never been more concerned than I am now when I look at geopolitical tensions. And just so you know, I hope like heck that the models that I'm using are wrong. I don't want this stuff to take place. I hope I'm overstating the danger, but that's not been the case so far. I'd rather the models were wrong because if they're right, then a whole lot of people are going to get hurt. Well, of course, tens of millions already are. There are people who already can't afford the increases in gas and food. And I'm talking in the Western world, let alone, to, let alone in developing nations. But lives are being hurt. And the number of people who are hurt continues to increase. But you know what? So far, our tendency, well, for the most part, is to ignore that. You got to forgive my sarcasm. But after all, they're the little people, certainly not the ones who attend the World Economic Forum or the latest COP climate fest. They're not in the faculty lounges or boardrooms. I mean, heaven forbid, they may not hold all the acceptable views. And heck, 
hundreds of millions of people most impacted are in countries like Somalia or Nigeria, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. So a lot of people think, what's that got to do with me? Again, I'm being sarcastic, but the overriding theme of money talks is that we're living in a period of declining confidence in government, which features a historic change economically, financially, and socially. So here's a quick test question before I'm done. Can you think of any action that the government's taken over the last few years that gives you increased confidence that they can handle the major changes we're facing, especially given they played a huge part in creating them? Come on, whether we're talking inflation, we had a huge increase in the money supply. At the same time, governments locked down, creating supply chain problems. How about the problems or delays that we've all heard about at the passport office or the disastrous Arrive Can app or the airport delays? Does that inspire confidence? Well, for most of us, the answer is no. And what are the big ones? What about health care? Come on, that's provincial and federal responsibility. Well, despite a 13% increase in federal funding in 2019-20, that's about three times the norm. Come on, we're still looking for family doctors. We got a shortage that's been forecast for years. An Angus Reid survey found that an estimated 12.8 million adults last year had difficulty either accessing or were totally unable to access one of five key health services last year in Canada. And come on, we also consistently rank near the bottom or dead last when it comes to wait times. Does that inspire confidence? Now, come on, you're welcome to your opinions, and I mean that. But I should note that social unrest throughout the world, which is a blatant reflection of declining confidence, with massive financial implications for you personally, well, it shows no sign of running out of steam. My point is, if you're looking for government to protect you, from the kind of massive financial and economic changes I'm talking about. There is simply no sign they're capable. Actually, there's no sign they understand the problems and to where and nowhere more obvious than when it comes to energy and food. Come in. If you think government's going to protect you, then you're going to be very disappointed. Actually, it's worse than that, as I've been chronicling. They're actively working to reduce your net worth, reduce your after-tax income, increase the cost of energy, which impacts everything we buy. You know, it's an easy message. You have to protect yourself. And we're looking to do everything we can on the show, on social media, and at the World Outlook Conference coming in February. We're trying to help. Hey, just another reminder, by the way, if you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, why don't you click on to the free email blast, the free e-blast. It's right there. You just click, let us know where to send it. Uh, We're going to continue to increase some of the volume of stuff that we're talking about there. But my goal, again, is always to give you the information. You can make the decisions. Time now for the quote of the week. And I'll introduce it by saying, finally, someone in the EU is being honest about how they got in the current energy geopolitical mess. And I'll add that I don't think it's happened in Canada or the U.S. yet. The quote comes from EU bureaucrat Joseph Burrell, who serves as High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. He states in quotes, Our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia. Russian gas, cheap and supposedly affordable, secure and stable. Well, it has proven not to be the case. And the access to the big Chinese market for exports and imports, for technological transfers, for investments, for having cheap goods, No, I think the Chinese workers with their low salaries have done much better and much more to contain inflation than all the central banks together. 
So our prosperity was based on China and Russia, energy and a market. This is a world that no longer is there. That's the new reality. The world is no longer there. The world of cheap energy, that massive Chinese market for Europe, but also uh, when you look at low interest rates, that's gone. The question is, are we up to meeting the challenge? So far, the answer has been an unequivocal no. As Doomberg observes, the current slate of Western leaders can be counted on to select the worst possible path forward at every critical juncture. You know, doing money talks, I've always had the great fortune. I get to talk to some top-notch people, uh, hear what they've got to think about the investment markets, about, you know, right down to your portfolio, things that they're looking at, but you can hear how they think about it. Well, I'll tell you, Paul Beattie is way, way up there on my list with BT Global. I love the fund because the fund, and Paul's done very well in the last year on this, I love the fund because it can play stocks to go up and down you know, uh, that they have a short, what's called a short position there. And, and I know he did very well. Well, many people were talking about how high some of those sort of non-profitable tech stories were. Well, Paul and BT Global were actually playing them to go down. But uh, we've already had it down now. So I, I've got lots of things to ask Paul about any, what I'd call safe and interesting investment opportunities, not trading, investment. Paul Beatty joins me now on the line. Paul, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let's get a quick, you know, Barbara Walters uh, overview of what you're seeing in the market today. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Uh, good to be back. Uh, what can I tell you? We've got just enormous volatility again this week. Uh, uh, we're struggling, to be honest with you. We don't want to tell anybody we've got some magic solutions. We, we've been struggling with the, with, with the volatility because it's been extreme. Uh, what happened this, uh, this week? I think Apple... Um, started the day down two and a half percent, ended uh, <laughs> ended that afternoon up two and a half percent. You know, five percent swings in the largest stock in the world. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's not easy to navigate these markets. We're not pretending we're very good at it, but uh, we do have a couple of ideas for you today and um, and your listeners. And um, and yes, we're closer to a bottom uh, than we were uh, you know six months ago. So. Uh, we, we're finding value everywhere, by the way. That's the one optimistic thing I would say. I think stocks are getting, uh, you know, very inexpensive or very cheap, uh, especially in Canada. Let me ask within the fundamental side, not the technical picture, you know, not the charting and all that, just the fundamentals when you say value. H how are you measuring that now? Has the value proposition been adjusted because, you know, going back a year, heck, I had a choice. I could get a Canada savings bond at you know, I think I was paying them, just joking. I certainly was in Europe, though, negative interest rates, but, you know, 1% for a year or something. Well, it wasn't tough to choose a stock that had some growth potential, had some dividend potential. That's at least somewhat changed. I mean, we have market consensus of 4 to 5% interest rates. That doesn't sound too bad in a risk, you know, in a one-year or a two-year where it's fairly riskless, fairly. Obviously, some governments, I think we should be doubting if it's riskless or not. But so what's it changed in your value proposition? Well, well, in an environment uh, where interest rates are, let's call it four and a half. Let's, let's go out uh, a couple of months. And yes, they're going to uh, increase rates again in the U.S. Another 75 basis points. You can expect that in November. So, so yes, you could get, you know, four and a half percent maybe on a two-year uh, T-bill, which is much different than it was <laughs> a year ago, right? At one percent. So, uh, yeah, there's an alternative, but 
let's say you're getting 5% uh, in bonds. Uh, you could theoretically be paying 20 times earnings uh, for a company. And if the company's got growth, that's not an unreasonable uh, multiple. But you can buy uh, all sorts of companies now uh, listed in Canada at uh, two and three times cash flow. And at those kind of levels in a 5% interest rate environment, they are just too, I mean, they're ridiculously cheap. Uh, so, so that's why I, I think there, there's value all over the place because uh, uh, you, you can identify these companies and it's kind of funny. Some are large cap, uh, certainly lots in the small cap space, but, but you can buy mid cap companies, you know, multi-billion dollar companies at, you know, two and a half times uh, uh, operating cash flow, which is just good value. When you look also, uh, just to go further, because I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for a couple of examples of what you guys are looking at. Uh, you know, and again, BT Global has a wide range of, uh, you know, they, I'm not going to get Paul to run down his entire portfolio short and long. That's what I'm saying. So you put it within your own context. But uh, BT Global's had an excellent track record. Uh, but I want to, uh, do you also go industry specific? So you, I, I give you an example. Do you say, okay, this company's got great cash flow, you know, compared to the price. But I'm not that keen on that industry. That industry looks like it's in trouble, um, or as, as opposed to I love this industry too. I think this is one of the stable industries. It can, it can go up and down in the short term, but over three to five years, we like it. Is that part of the approach, or am I adding another layer that doesn't need to be there if you find the right situation? No, I think if you if you want to outperform the markets, I think the first decision is which industry should I be in, right? And, and once you've made that decision, and unfortunately, some industries are just not that cheap. And, and frankly, technology is still not all that cheap, right? I mean, uh, all these big cap uh, FANG stocks and uh, whatnot. I mean, Apple today still trades at 22 times uh, both earnings and cash flow. And it's a $2.3 trillion company. So I, I'm not so sure that's what I would call a cheap stock. And, and uh, so we're, we don't really play in the tech space. Um, but, you know, you, you, you got to like the, the financial sector. Um, uh, bank stocks aren't that expensive, but you can, but we don't play with the banks necessarily because they've got lots of leverage. We, we went, jump into that uh, go easy uh, just to pick a company. I was with the CEO yesterday on a call and um, look, this company's growing at 25% per year. Um, uh, they don't have much debt, right? They're, they have, you know, some leverage, but nowhere near the levels of the bank. So, you know, they've got uh, 50% uh, uh, market cap, 50% debt kind of thing. Um, uh, they are trading at six and a half times earnings. Okay. And uh, dividends are going up. They're going to, they increase their dividend every February. So you're gonna have to wait till February to go to watch it go from 3.5% dividend yield to 4.3 we're suggesting. So business is very good, right? So they lend money to everybody in Canada that the banks don't touch. Uh, don't tell me that business isn't going to be growing. That is going to, it's going to be a growth sector. Uh, uh, they're going into the auto trading business. Uh, not auto traders, sorry, uh, auto financing uh, business. It's a $60 billion market. So this is a $3 billion market cap company. They're going on a $60 billion new market for them. And they think they're going to be the largest in Canada within a year. And they're still only going to be lending about a billion bucks into that market. So it's a small part of the opportunity. So this is a terrific growth company uh, trading at under seven times earnings. I mean, come on, uh, the stock's cheap, right? So, And when you look at something like that, 
do you create a time frame immediately? Like, I'm not a trader, and, and you guys are investors, you know, or, or you play them short, and you have a time frame for that too. But I, I, just to give me a, a sort of a, a rule of thumb, I, I should sort of fall, buy it, fall asleep, or wake up three years from now, something like that. Or is it five? No, so go easy. We've, we've owned the stock for 13 years. I think I've talked about it on, on, yeah. on your show a few times. But so we've come to the conclusion you never sell it uh, mm-hmm. in its entirety. And what we're going to do is we're going to trade it just before their earnings because the market seems to ignore them, you know, two and a half months a year. And before they report their earnings, which are they always succeed and they uh, <laughs> and the stock's cheap and it's, they're always growing more than the market expects. So so we're, we add to our position, uh, you know, three weeks before the earnings come out and uh, and we'll sell a week after uh, after they announce. So it, but not all of it. Right. You just sell, you know, two percent position. You move it to four. Or maybe we'll go back to uh, to three kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but, yeah, but yeah. that gives a great example of what you're looking for in the marketplace is what I, uh, what you've explained very well. Uh, but I, I, you know me, I'm going to st- still do it, Paul. Give me another example. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let's uh, let's talk uh, let's talk agri for a sec, right? I mean, I listen to your show, and, and I think we we're all aware that there's a very large risk of us having a global food crisis this year. Uh, so that's interesting. Not good news for uh, particularly Africa and the Middle East, but. Uh, how, how can we uh, make money off this? And we've, we've found, first of all, nutrients, a core holding. I think of all the companies you can pick in Canada, uh, you know, large cap, you know, $40, $50 billion company, uh, nutrients got a, f- I think it's the number one spot. Uh, it's, it's, you know, but it's basically Canada's dominant uh, fertilizer provider. So you, you buy that company. That company's not, by the way, very expensive either. I think it trades at five times cash flow right now. So buy some nutrient. Problem is the stock goes up uh, five, five or 6% per day, you know, up or down five or 6% a day. It's ridiculous. Um, so, but you got to have that. Uh, we found another one though, uh, uh, that we've added to all over the, uh, all through the year, a company called Etafos. So imagine this for a second. If I could tell you there's a uh, phosphate producer in the United States <clears throat> that's trading at two and a half times uh, cash flow, and, yeah, if I could dream up that scenario and tell you about it, I doubt you'd believe me. But uh, companies called Etafos trades in Canada. That's probably why it's so cheap. It's not listed in the U.S. exchange yet. Uh, the company is has been a turnaround. Uh, management's done a terrific job. That used to have a high level of debt. Debt's now down 150 million bucks. And uh, but they have excess assets that they have announced that they're selling, and we think those assets are worth. Uh, just about that number, $150 million. So basically, you're getting this pure uh, play uh, potash company in Idaho, America, uh, at between two and two and a half times uh, EBITDA. And, and, uh, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will. Actually, I do, but uh, you know, no. Do you know the symbol off the top of your head? Uh, sure. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, nobody's familiar with it. I should know the symbol, right? Uh, Itafos, I-F-O-S. Trades on the venture exchange here in Canada. IFOS, great. Yeah, IFOS, Itafos. And, uh, you know, it's not a big trading thing. I mean, you can't, you know, you're not going to jump in and jump out every day in a stock like this. But but it, it's tremendously well-run company. It's uh, you got to play on, on phosphate. you got to play in the U.S. market in phosphate. Uh, like, it's hard to imagine uh, that it's too cheap. I could make the argument that this thing should be trading at 12 times uh, EBITDA because of just the strategic nature of of the yeah. assets they own, right? And 
look, there's no secret. Uh, phosphates, you know, it's it's considered a strategic asset, right? I mean, without that, you can't make fertilizer. Without fertilizer, you can't grow food, and your population goes uh, goes hungry. So, uh, what's it worth? I don't know. I think it's I think it's just ridiculous. You could come up with a multiple of ten times EBITDA, I would think. Uh, and good management. These guys have done a great job turning around. So there's one for you. But it seems like, uh, I mean, again, we, I appreciate very much you sort of explaining the thinking on it, because I think that's the lesson that people have got to take away. You look at an industry that you like, you know, uh, you know, in this case, it's fertilizer, part of the food problem. Clearly, fertilizer has been a huge problem over the last year and a bit. Uh, in fact, we'll see this week if President Biden adds any other obstacles to getting, uh, you know, fertilizer related uh, ingredients if not directly, you know, out of uh, his country, because that can be, because there's going to be talk on Wednesday, I think it is. But uh, again, there's an industry that needs a solution. Fertilizer is in demand. So you start with that and then you break down the cash flow numbers because uh, being in the right industry sort of encourages that cash flow to be more supported. Right. Uh, Exactly right. And I I think... I think it's going to become topical. I mean, like, not everybody's an expert on on fertilizer or you know uh, the ingredients that go into it or or the strategic nature of. Well, certainly, um, sorry, excuse me, but it, certainly that seems to be a prerequisite in cabinet making energy decisions that you have to be completely <laughs> unsophisticated uh, because they've all signed an agreement that they're not going to spend one hour researching the importance of natural gas or ammonia <laughs> or urea. So, yeah. <laughs> not everyone should be. I, I just, you know, Paul. I've been saying no. I don't think everyone should be either. I do think anyone making policy has an obligation to be informed, and it's not that tough to be informed about this one. No, right. And uh, but it, but the, the stock market, I would say, you know, it's not filled with experts on some of these uh, more niche industries, and so you can't expect the stocks to be. Uh, properly valued all the time, especially when you get into the smaller cap space. So it's not that surprising that you, you can find uh, you can find value um, uh, in certain sectors. Let me ask you about the energy industry. Speaking of, uh, you know, first of all, sort of a broader outlook. Again, we're not talking trading at this moment. We're talking about positioning, positioning that you might keep for three years or four or whatever. Uh, you know, market dictate, of course. But you know, what about the Canadian energy industry? Okay, so. So we're not energy experts, but we have come to the conclusion that natural gas and 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 the oil sides are really two different businesses, both uh, equally uh, interesting for different purposes, but or different reasons. But but we've come to the conclusion we need to go to a full position in natural gas. So we've gone to it's twenty percent of the fund. Okay, so we've got big bets there, and then we uh, we have a bunch of energy names at about fourteen fifteen percent of the fund. So so we've got lots, but. But what I like about energy is you can get whatever you want there. You want a growth story, you can find it. You want a, uh, a, a value story, you can certainly find that in the energy space. And then, frankly, now, if you want a high-yielding, uh, uh, low-debt company, a, a company with zero debt and will pay you 7% uh, or more uh, in dividend, you can find that in the energy space. So... We're taking that all day long, and uh, and uh, you know the the obvious one, uh, Cardinal Energy. Um, uh, yeah, it's paying you as of today over seven percent, and I see. I think they have no debt. Um, Birchcliff just announced last night, right? Uh, I, I saw them at your show uh, the last time we were live right? three years ago. I, I hung out with the management of Birchcliff, and these guys' stock was nowhere near where it is today. So they, they've they've recovered nicely, but they just announced last night that they're going to a seven percent 
uh, dividend yield uh, next year. They're going to give you a 20 cent uh, special dividend uh, next month, but basically they're on a run right now uh, and it's 7% uh, yield. Guess what? The stock went down 7% on the news, by the way, but um, but business is pretty good for Birchcliff and uh, and all your investors. If they bought three years ago at two bucks, they're happy. The stock's up around 11 now, but now you're getting the yield and, I, and, and I'll take that kind of yield. It's a growth company. And uh, and it, and the multiples, uh, it's trading at three times uh, cash flow. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say one of the things that you're sort of addressing that I have in my mind is after I've watched the company go up, I have to justify paying higher. I mean, I'm talking that's a real amateur attitude, by the way, on my part, <laughs> you know, and I've had to overcome it over the years. But what you're saying is you've got to then examine, okay, so it's up. It doesn't matter what stock, stock ABC went from two bucks to eight bucks. Is it a buy now? Well, you have to see if the fundamentals have caught up or even outstripped it. And that's something I had to learn the hard way. I missed out I, lots of opportunities in my I, life that way. I think I think Birchcliff's uh, it's a it's still a growth story. Uh, it's very clear. Management's uh, they boosted their capex plan and whatnot for next year. It's a growth story. It's a value story. And now you're getting a seven percent yield. I mean, uh, okay, seven percent. Yeah. I mean, uh, come on, this is uh, far in excess of what the bond market's giving you. Uh, met with uh, met with the guys that uh, you know you want to you want a value stock. Uh, this is a five billion dollar company. So imagine this. I'll, I'll tell you the scenario. Five billion dollar company. In the energy space, global. Okay, they're in Europe, they're in the U.S., they're in Canada. They've got a few. Anyway, those three markets. Um, they are going to pay all of their debt. The CEO was in our office uh, three weeks ago. He says, "I'm paying down basically all my debt. Uh, the debt will go down to a minimum amount. It's not. It's not exactly zero because what's the point of going to zero? But he's going to run it down to less than five hundred million dollars. Uh, he's got a market cap of five billion. He says, I'm going to uh, institute a uh, special dividends. I'm going to buy back 20% of my stock next year, 20% of the company. So that's a billion bucks uh, he's going to buy at these prices. And then he said, I, and I'm still going to have 800 million in excess cash that I don't know what I'm going to do with. Okay, this company is called Vermilion. It's an energy company and the stock is trading. It, it, you pick the multiple. Tell me what multiple you'd be prepared to pay, but you can buy it right now in the markets at uh, two. Point two times EBITDA. I mean, yeah. it's great value and well-run company, by the way, and and doing very well. And and the debt's disappearing. Um, well, which is music the, music to my ears, by the way. I mean, debt is the problem in the world today, and I know it's at the government level this time. You know, two thousand nine, ten, it was at the you know corporate level, but this is the government level. But I don't care. I love to hear that kind of conservative stabilize my company approach going forward, so I'm not vulnerable to whatever happens in the credit markets. And I, and I guess that's the problem for, for me with the, the REIT investment, right? They're high-yielding REITs uh, in Canada, uh, uh, people uh, are well aware of, and, and it's great. The problem is these companies are a little bit more levered, right? Uh, they've got significant uh, debt, and then they to grow, they have to find a new project, and they have to go borrow more. So the whole growth scenario is, 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 is borrowing some money, and then they pay out basically all the cash flow that they get in every year. And I, I don't like that model quite as much. I'd much rather have an energy company with not a dollar in debt and uh, uh, and, and trade at a much lower multiple. So anyway, you can find yield now in the energy space, and, and we're doing that. I don't want to run out of time without asking you about 
as I say, I think one of the features that I've talked about for 10 years with BT Global is the ability to play the market to go short. And I know in November, you were taking advantage of some of those looking inside the portfolio. Uh, you know, people on the show who listen regularly know, uh, you know, my sort of almost running joke is, is Peloton, you know, that got so excessively high that I said, if we, as long as we each have one in both bathrooms, and the living room and the rec room, they'll be fine. Well, of course, you guys actually shorted it. You actually played it to go down. Uh, that's an example. So I just want to get just maybe a brief, I know I'm keeping you too long, a brief update on the short side of the portfolio. I mean, uh, what kind of are you, what things are you doing or thinking of right now? Okay. So first of all, let's be, let's be honest. A lot of the, a lot of very overvalued companies have come down to earth it's no longer so easy to to just say okay i'm going to i'm going to short peloton because it had a, a tremendous valuation and, uh, and 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 no revenue or cash flow to back it up but um, i think that you know sectors i think uh, you could short uh, and we do is the um, still the semiconductor space i don't i just don't get the valuations it makes it doesn't make any sense to me the stocks are not doing well so that etf the sox soxx um, you know big gathering of 50 uh, semiconductor companies, most of which are all are expensive. And, and anyway, we've been shorting it for a year now. It goes down every week, so it's not that complicated. Stay, you know, we're short that big time. We're short the uh, Lion Electric Company uh, here in Quebec, this, this story that these guys desperately need money. Um, you, know, uh, you know, building, sure, building electric cars is great, but you know, costs money to do that. You, you need to build the plants first and, and you, you better do it without debt and you better, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money and uh, as you build up your business. So we don't, we don't like that. We don't, uh, one thing for sure we don't like, we don't like the Euro. Uh, I think that the, the, the big trade uh, is just stay short the Euro. Um, and um, uh, I think that's an easy trade for anybody to do actually, if you wanted. Uh, we talked about being in cash. I, you know, some of your uh, speakers last week say, you know, cash is not a bad alternative in, in, in these volatile markets. Well, okay, but what cash? So what we've decided is let's get into U.S. dollars and let's frankly just short the euro. And then for Canadians, I mean, look, the Canadian dollar is down another cent today, another percent today, one uh, percent in in a single day. I I just don't think uh, the world is looking at Canada any longer as a petro currency. Largely because our government doesn't, you know, uh, like <laughs> the energy yeah. space for some crazy reason. And as foreigners look at us, they go, "Okay, if these guys don't like energy, why, why would we like Canada as an energy player, right?" Even though, of course, we've got all the energy the world needs. Um, so I think uh, I, I don't until we get a political change, right? Until we stop talking about taxing uh, Alberta and uh, uh, and carbon tax and whatnot. Until we get realistic about uh, how much we we love this business and how it funds everything in Canada. I think our Canadian dollar is going to continue to uh, to underperform. Uh, so I think I think cash is I think U.S. dollar cash is better than Canadian, to be honest with you. Um, uh, and that has profound implications for all sorts of uh, all sorts of businesses here. Well, the good news is that we're going to be able to check back in with you at the World Outlook Conference. You know, Paul, I, I tell you, I'm thrilled that you're coming out again. Absolutely thrilled. Nice to have you in person, by the way, for a change. And I think everyone feels that way. You know, it's nice to be back on a live uh, event. And so uh, I really appreciate you taking time here, but I appreciate your support and coming out for the World Outlook. Uh, lots of updates by then. 
you'll tell us what your takes are. I know, uh, and our thanks to you and BT Global. We'll have some good ideas for you, hopefully. And uh, great to see you, Michael. And um, and I love the show. I can tell you, just much appreciated. It. Take care. You know, for all the talk about the transition to renewable energy, the transition to electric vehicles, uh, obviously batteries are going to play a massive part in that. And that has a lot of other implications. I'm not convinced that we as the public know enough about it at this point. We've heard the rhetoric. I'm not sure if we've heard the facts. That's why I'm so pleased to have with me the CEO of Nano One. Now, Nano One has been involved with, you know, the uh, technology. It's a leading platform for global production of what I think is referred to as a new generation of battery materials. They're completely integrated into that. Boy, exciting what they're doing. They've got a lot of new partners involved. I saw the latest or one of the recent announcements of Rio Tinto, the world's, you know, we're talking about the top mining companies in the world. So I'm very pleased, as I say, to get Dan Blondell on with me. Dan, appreciate you taking the time. I bet you're a busy guy. Yeah, well, it's been a it's been a really um, uh, busy year and and a busy couple of years, uh, Michael, since we've last spoke. So it's a it's a pleasure to be on here, and and uh, I, I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it as I always do. It seems to me that I mean, no matter well, like going forward here, it, we're going to do the renewable revolution, the transition there. We're going to do the electric vehicle transition. And so I want to talk about some of the challenges that we go forward with. I mean, uh, for example, one of the things I've been saying on Money Talks for ages is. Hey, that's all good, but tell me where you're going to get the raw materials for it. Whether uh, different raw materials, obviously, if we're talking just batteries or we're talking just wind turbines, etc. But it still is a broad kind of thing that we're going to need a heck of a lot of resources. And I just want to get your take where we're at with that. Well, you're, you're bang on. I mean, the, the, the resources we need, um, uh, whether that's lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, iron, aluminum, um, uh, zirconium, niobium, these are all components that play are, are, are key components in a, in the cathode materials. So let's say they go into a, a battery or, or graphite, uh, which goes onto the anode, uh, which is the other electrode in the battery. Uh, we will need, uh, we will need millions, tens of millions of tons of these materials to, uh, to drive the whole sort of EV industry. And, uh, and in doing so, um, that's all got to get, uh, that's got to get mined, refined, processed, purified, um, all of that before you assemble, like the, so say the lithium and the nickel and the cobalt into a cathode material. And uh, look, the mining, the, the mines and the resources are where they are in, in the in the world. Uh, we rely right now quite heavily on materials out of uh, out of China and uh, South America, uh, some out of Australia, some out of um, uh, Africa and Canada. Uh, but we're sitting on, I think, on a on a really kind of uh, let's call it a generational opportunity here in Canada, in particular. We're we're rich in a lot of these resources. They're not necessarily exploited. They're not necessarily ready to go, but we're sitting on um, some really golden opportunities here. I think um, not only to not only to extract the materials here, but to process them directly into cathode materials and into batteries without shipping them outside of the country. So to create a midstream, it's not just about mining, it's not just about the refining, but to create the whole value chain here in Canada. So, uh, uh, and to give that a, to give that some context, um, uh, you know, we, we in Canada, we're, we, we, we all know this as Canadians, we cut down trees and ship them out only to buy them back as furniture. We, uh, we ship out bitumen, we ship out raw materials, we ship out brain power. Um, and, and all of that, uh, you know, leads to a, a strong resource economy. But 
it really kind of uh, avoids what happens in the midstream. So, so what I see here is a really strong opportunity to uh, uh, to build out that midstream and, and, and tackle it. But it's it's not to say it's it, it's it's a very large task uh, that we have to uh, to permit these mines to permit the refining and all the chemical plants that, that are needed to uh, to come into play. But um, uh, that opportunity lies before us and and we're starting to see the Canadian government and the U.S. government sort of finally coming into play and, and, and pushing on this to make it happen. Well, one of the things that jumps out at me when you say that is the timeline. Uh, for example, I mean, to me, if they, they, they have timelines for when we're going to c- convert to uh, EVs, for example, California, was that 2030 or 35? Great Britain doing the same thing. And I'm going, well, do you have any idea how long it takes to get a copper mine up and running? Uh, what about your regulatory process? I mean, this is what concern, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, believe me, Dan, but I'm just saying as someone sitting here, I go, well, man, you better stay looking at that uh, regulatory environment because you're preventing a lot of stuff from happening. And then of course, You've got also huge, it was nothing to do with government, but they have huge opposition. As soon as, you know, I'm looking at lithium and, you know, the business you're in with batteries. My gosh, I mean, how many different lawsuits by environmental groups have been filed to stop lithium mining in the United States? And it seems that we're working at cross purposes. And that just leads me to think the timelines are really unrealistic. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. The, 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 the timelines are, are very ambitious. And the and and they are uh, you know at odds or at co- in contrast with our ability to to build mines, um, you know, permit them, um, uh, and and put them into place. We don't want to loosen the regulatory requirements to build mines. We want to actually tighten them. We want to be. We need to be more um, uh, competitive against China from an environmental point of view. Uh, we need to be. Um, we need to be more socially responsible about how we put these things in place. But we also need to be able to do it faster. We need to find ways to to regulate these faster. And 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 I, and I do hear those those discussions are happening with governments. I don't think they've quite figured out how to deal with it, but it, they recognize that if we want to go fast and meet these incredible, you know, 2030, 2035, 2040 um, deadlines to get rid of internal combustion engines, we're going to have to find ways to permit these things. And with the, with the deglobalization that's happening around the world, whether that be the, you know, the, all of the energy related stuff that's related to Ukraine and Russia, or really the, the, um, the, the, the rather um, aggressive stance against uh, against China's um, sort of battery uh, supremacy. If we're going to do it, we have to figure out a way to do it responsibly and 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 carefully. And but it, there's an opportunity here to to get it done right. Are we going to hit those deadlines? And uh, look, they're ambitious, big, hairy, audacious goals, and, uh, and and in some ways, you have to set those to get the whole kind of world kind of moving in the right direction. Will we hit them? Um, probably, probably not. Um, but I do think that they're that it's necessary to set these audacious goals in order to get the whole thing in motion. Uh, maybe they'll need to be reset in five years um, to be something more realistic. Um, but it, uh, but I, I agree with you. Certainly, there's a there's a tremendous challenge here um, to to go that kind of that fast and be able to mobilize these mines that you know many of them don't even exist today. Well, so, I, I think what's interesting it's misunderstood that there's one thing about the degree of mining we need, but then you have to refine the materials. And when I start looking at what's going on in that direction, I mean. China's the dominant power, but really by far, it's it's a huge factor. I mean, you look at rare earths and what China's doing over 80% of the refining, you know, the processing of them. Uh, lithium's above 50% for sure. Cobalt's above 50%. 
uh, let alone the fact that, you know, the majority of cobalt is being taken out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo with child labor. I mean, I'm just alluding to it's complicated. And then you have to overlay provincial and federal. So somebody federally can really have uh, this uh, bee in their bonnet and going to go and bumps into a, a provincial problem. I mean, yeah, I guess my, my yeah, challenge is layer on to that nimbyism, right? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, you don't, you, they don't have that problem in China. We, you know, we may very well want these material. We may very well want electric vehicles and batteries in our cars and our phones, but no one wants to mine in their backyard. And that is, uh, that's a problem the West has to face somehow. It, uh, these are these are large problems for sure. Well, one of the things that you're doing at Nano One is, for example, I know that you have, uh, you know, they announced uh, with Rio Tinto, you know, monster mining company, a strategic partnership. It seems to me that the private side, Dan, is maybe equally concerned, more concerned, but they're actually doing something about it, like moving forward, you know, General Motors. I mean, what, what car company isn't going electric, if you know what I mean, which I just find interesting that uh, the privates really pushed and you guys have been right there with them. Yeah, look, look the, the big large autocos are all still trying to figure it out as well. So they're, uh, they, uh, you know, they like the big governments are, are looking at these massive uh, supply chain challenges and trying to figure out how they fit into it. They're, they're having to start invest up into the supply chain. We just saw an announcement yesterday, GM investing in a, uh, in a, um, uh, Australian mining company uh, to get access to sort of nickel and and uh, and copper. Uh, that's unheard of in the in the last fifty years in the in the automotive industry. So these are these are all big changes in terms of where they're going, uh, and, and how how the supply chain will get developed. It won't develop on its own. It's going to develop with the really the biggest cash cows in the world trying to drive the change, and that would be the big automotive companies, ultimately governments to support this. The what we're doing. What we're doing at Nano One actually, this is a really interesting thing. This is how how we become um, we've become very much a, a an example for the Canadian government um, because of our strategy. Our strategy, for instance, with Rio Tinto, is to work with them directly on their uh, on their lithium and their iron assets. We can use iron powder that is being refined today in Canada in the largest the iron powder facility. And we're working with them to develop those iron powders, for instance, to use directly in our cathode materials. So we don't, we don't need to invest in a refinery. We don't need to invest in a mine uh, in order to get those materials into a battery today. And, and that's kind of one of the strategies we've taken. We've said, well, how do we use existing um, supply chains rather than create new refineries uh, or, or create new capital risk um, in building new refineries and, and rather go directly from nickel metal powder or iron metal powder or, or manganese metal powder to go directly into cathode materials to make it easy, make the transition easier to these, uh, to these new supply chains. And that's become, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of a lone voice in the wilderness right now. Everyone else is just trying to copy the way it's done in China. And that comes with a whole bunch of environmental problems. It comes with a bunch of investment problems. It comes with a bunch of supply chain risks. And we believe that there are there's cleaner, shorter, less complex, and and less environmentally uh, uh, challenging ways to do this. And but it's still going to require a tremendous amount of investment. Ultimately, it'll still require mining, and uh, and that's going to have to happen locally if we want to make if we want security of supply if we want to compete effectively against uh, against sort of the collapsing collapsing geopolitical system that's out there right now. 
What's so interesting, though, is it sort of answers part of my question about where's the future. And so you guys are working on the future. As you say, you want a battery that doesn't require brand new supply chains, doesn't require necessarily relying on China. So that's one part of the future. Uh, just uh, again, just picking your brain. But where else is the, the goal? I mean, for example, are, is one of the goals to try and double the range of a battery or lighten it by half? You know, that kind of thing. Right. So in, in, certainly in our case, um, our case is really about, look, we, we're, we're building a, a process technology or processes to combine lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt into, a, into an active uh, cathode or, or an active battery material. So you have to combine those in order to make it store energy. And, and in doing so, we're trying, to drive just, we're trying to drive down complexity, cost, and environmental footprint in the supply chain. Uh, it's kind of as simple as that. The, 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 the materials that we make eventually get assembled into battery cells and then into larger battery packs, which have many cells in them. And, and the trends we're seeing in the industry right now are uh, the, the lightning or, the, or to create more energy-dense batteries. They're, it's all happening at the pack level. So this is the big, big battery that goes between the wheels of your car. It might have hundreds or thousands of battery cells in it. And how do you how, how do they lighten that up, um, uh, improve the structural integrity of it by making it lighter and making the batteries kind of closer and more densely packed? And that we've seen some tremendous trends. Large, large of them, a large amount of these are coming out of China. Uh, that's where we're seeing these ideas uh, initiate. But we're starting to see it uh, propagate into some of the North American automotive thinking as well. How do you make that battery between the wheels? How do you pack more cells between the wheels um, uh, without increasing the weight? And that's really the uh, that's really critical to driving better range and and improving the the sustainability ultimately of that battery system because then the you know the materials are, are driving less uh, extraneous weight around um, they're just yeah. uh, they're just providing the energy to drive themselves around yeah I would think that would be a huge development but all of what you're saying would be huge and it's uh, heartening to hear that's the direction things are going uh, I guess I come back to the timeline for this reason yeah. Uh, there are some people who've promoted that we will absolutely not need fossil fuels. Uh, I don't see how that happens in the kind of time frame they're talking about. We're talking electric vehicles. I, I'm talking broader about renewable energy and the need for fossil fuels to actually manufacture uh, the solar panels or the do the mining involved in all of this or do the wind uh, wind turbines, you know, the aluminum it's needed. It's going to need fossil fuels. And that's why I'm, I'm concerned about a realistic timeline for all of this, that it's got to be uh, one over overlapping sort of uh, plan that's practical that will get it done uh, as opposed to talking about it. And that's why as I say, it's fascinating to hear what you're saying and where they're going with it. But uh, let me come fi finally back to the timeline. I mean, uh, you guys are working presently on some of these uh, challenges and, and solutions. You're working with companies on it. But again, what's, a, what's realistic? If we were going to advise the government, what's realistic here? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there in, 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 yeah, the, in, I'm sorry. in, in that. But I, I, there's... Um, you know, for, first on the on the uh, you know, basically on on carbon and fuels, we're going to need them um, for the the foreseeable future. I mean, the, the reality is that's where the energy density is the best, and and for any kind of long range, uncertain sort of range on vehicles, like a, like a truck driving across across the the country. I mean, if you if you try to pack up 
if if you try to drive that on on battery power alone, um, the battery gets so big that there's no there's no room left for cargo, and mm-hmm. uh, and so we've got to be realistic. I think we we need hybrid solutions, just like just like um, um, batteries aren't going to replace dams. Um, uh, batteries aren't going <laughs> to because because a dam can store energy for uh, for 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 half a year, or a year, or months, uh, or weeks, and 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 batteries, lithium ion batteries, are really only effective for up to four or five hours of storage. Anything beyond that becomes economically and environmentally ineffective because the your utility on the battery goes way down, and and you you it's just not sustainable. So so we need a whole bunch of different ways of storing and delivering energy and, and be that, um, you know, hydroelectric or pump storage, which is basically running the dam backwards, um, uh, whether that be, you know, using compressed air or converting uh, converting solar energy into biofuels. Uh, um, uh, uh, these are all going to be incredibly important to uh, really rethinking our energy, uh, our energy makeup. Batteries will play a, an important role, uh, but by no means can they replace all uh, all fuels. Uh, fuels fuel will remain an incredibly important part of it. Look, plastics are are, are driven from that part of the industry. Are we need um, uh, your fleece jackets are are made from uh, from oil products and. This is all. This all play. We have to figure out a way to 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 minimize the impact, but uh, and and they're very complex on the on the supply chain. But it, it is uh, uh, fundamentally we need hybridized solution. There is no panacea. Um, uh, there probably never will be, and so we have to find a, a you know the happy medium, the compromises. Well, that's it's so well summed up too. I just want to remind people that Nano One Materials uh, trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol Nano N O N A N O on Toronto.to. Uh, and then I got to tell you that's that you've done a fabulous job here, and I think it's so important uh, for people like yourself with the expertise to continue as you've just done to raise the level of conversation. That's how we'll get uh, solutions much faster. Get away from rhetoric. Get into what's really happening. As I say, you've done a wonderful job. Thanks for finding time. Well, well, thanks. It's really, um, uh, it's really a pleasure being on here. And I, look, I just want to leave you this one last thought: is, is I'm not only talking to you about this, but you know, we are. I spent uh, I spent a week in Washington D.C. a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Ottawa the week before that, and we were with the German contingent that came over um, in in late uh, August or early September. I can't remember the dates now. Um, working with the, literally a meeting with the Chancellor of Germany, trying to figure out how we can improve the supply chains to address these energy needs. So, uh, not only am I getting the opportunity to speak to you and, and your listeners, but we're we're resonating with governments kind of around the world in terms of what we're trying to do at Nano One and to to drive change, um, not just for us, obviously, but for the for the better of the the whole supply chain and how to make it happen faster. Well, that's good news. Thanks very much for your efforts there, but also for your efforts here. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, great. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I I better give you some context before we go here. I mean, there are a few people who disagree that there's a huge energy shortage right now, principally both in oil and natural gas, but also refined products like gasoline and diesel. And there's only two possible solutions, hardly a, an insight here, but you either have a dramatic reduction in consumption demand or the other is to increase supply. So far, governments, though, seem to be completely confused on both scores, supply and demand. 
And I think that's putting it kindly. I mean, for example, on the demand side, we've got government saying you've got to cut back uh, energy consumption. But at the same time, they turn around and initiate massive subsidy programs. Maybe it's a, a, a tax reduction on energy, or maybe it's just literally sending out a check, which encourages consumption. I mean, which is it? On the supply side, well, gosh, we've got government saying we definitely need more oil and gas. They continue to talk about so-called windfall taxes, though. Come on, that discourages investment in new production, as does continuing to talk about the phase-out of oil and gas. And you've got a regulatory environment that continues to put up roadblocks in many cases. So which is it? Do you want more supply or don't you? I mean, there are exceptions. I'll acknowledge that the UK has lifted the ban on fracking. Uh, They want to put forward more nuclear plants, and you had a big debate going on around nuclear. But come on, so far, the overall approach has been to ask for greater supply, more production, but at the same time, putting forward with both the rhetoric and measures that would discourage it. And that brings me to the shocking stat. Well, Canada had a choice to be a major player in the energy crisis right now. We said no. Most recently, the prime minister said no to LNG on the East Coast. I thought with a pretty peculiar statement saying that there's no business case. Well, you know what? That's not up to the government to decide. That's up to the companies, I think, who propose, what, five LNG plants? They'll make that decision. But as it's well chronicled for the past seven years, the federal government, well, powerful environmental groups too, uh, disagreement within Indigenous communities and really is an unworkable but importantly changing regulatory environment, well, it's discouraged capital investment in the energy sector which has persuaded persuaded huge amounts of capital and some head offices to leave Canada. But how much are we talking? Well, here's the shock. Up to early 2020, an estimated $150 billion of lost investment opportunity is gone, has left, has stopped, has ceased. That could have generated billions in taxes, tens of thousands of jobs, but it's been canceled. It's a number so big that I think it's tough for us to comprehend. And an investment environment, by the way, that prevented Canada from being this major player in the ongoing crisis. And the question, well, few seem willing to ask is, what specifically did we get in return for saying no to $150 billion of lost investment and tens of thousands of jobs? You know, I was just sitting here thinking to myself, analyst, schmanalist. I want people on the ground. I want people who know what's going on. And I'm talking about the gold and silver market, because I think an awful lot of people have been surprised that given the amount of money that's being flushed into the system, I mean, you know, Canada's money supply up 27% in two years, the US at 40%. You know, I know we've been talking a lot about Great Britain. I'll talk more about it with uh, Victor coming up about the amount of money they're flushing into the system. So people thought, hey, presto, gold and silver must be higher, especially silver, because it's got also, you know, the industrial metals use, especially when you start talking about solar panels. So the list is a long one, but it hasn't performed. So I thought, I want to go right to the source on this. And I've got Jason Weber with me. He's the president and CEO of Alianza Minerals. Jason, first of all, appreciate you taking time. Oh, thanks very much, Michael. My pleasure. Have you been surprised by sort of the lackluster performance of gold and silver, the negative, even the negative, I'm not talking off the highs, but, you know, sort of their solid trading range. But of course, everything's gone down. I mean, you know, stocks have gone down, bonds, their worst, you know, uh, on history, their worst uh, sort of record on history, look at the 10-year bond. So it's not an isolation. 
but is that the context? It's, it's just pretty much it's liquidation. Everything's going down. Yeah, I, I think that does help, Mike, that, you know, we look at it as there. this is across uh, many financial instruments. It's not just gold. It's not just silver. Um, makes it potentially a little easier to uh, to swallow as a as a company CEO trying to, to operate in this environment. But it also, um, I think it probably gives us a little bit uh, of a better outlook long-term because we feel that just fundamentally that this is going to improve, maybe a little little bit of pain here for the next few months. But I, I think, you know, if you look long-term, I think we feel pretty pretty strongly that the precious metals are going to perform much better than they have. I mean, you're, you're right. It's been, it's been, the sentiment in our in our market has been, you know, it's been terrible for the last eighteen months. So, which creates opportunity, really. Well, what about uh, just sorry? I know, know I'm asking you to give some anecdotal evidence, but you talk to a lot of people in the general business, you know, the mining side of things in, in the precious metals. What's their feeling like, uh, you know, going forward? Are they optimistic or they've been beaten up by what's been going on? But you know, I mean, as I say, every other sector seems to be taking a hit. So. I think certainly as we've come out of the summer, the optimism is a little stronger. Uh, I, w- I was at a silver conference in Spokane uh, at the end of August that, uh, you know, there was a lot of people there that were pretty uh, pretty down on how the markets were through the, through the summer and, and just expected that with everything that was going on in the world, you know, economically and uh, with Ukraine and Russia that we would have seen higher precious metals prices that would um, maybe avoid sentiment a little bit more. I I think as we came out of that, though, um, and people looked ahead, I think there was a a sense of optimism that we're probably at or near the bottom and and that as we move forward, um, there would be a a stronger market for, for us to operate in. I think you know, we saw some indications there's been a little bit of M&A. Uh, I think that was a, a, a bit of a positive indicator. So I think there's a few clues there that would uh, push us to a more optimistic stance. But then you also have to weigh that against the fact is uh, mineral explorationists, we see the positive light more often than not. So we're, uh, we're, we're positive by nature. So I, I think we're always looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, well, one of the things I'll just say, you know, for people is that we're going to get a tax loss selling season that's going to impact an awful lot of stocks. And uh, I would say, uh, you know, for people, make your list of uh, gold miners because I, I like what I'm seeing in the gold mining side. I like the cash flow of some of the bigger producers. I think the uh, juniors uh, who've got discoveries, you know, who are, you know, moving on are just incredibly cheap. You know, and, and probably that last kick at the can short term would be as we come into November, December and people are looking, you know, it's typical every industry, stock industry, uh, you know, go through sort of that tax loss selling. I think that might provide an opportunity. You know, I, I'm old fashioned. I like to buy stuff when they're cheap, not when they're overpriced. <laughs> well, and I, and it's interesting at that same silver conference, I, I was talking to some people that were fairly new to the the silver and and precious metals space silver in particular because that's the conference we were at uh, and they were they were asking you know questions along that line of well you know out of the 20 companies that are here who would you buy and i'd say i'd buy them all if i could because these are the probably the uh, of the silver companies that are out there with with discoveries they're probably the ones that are going to move first and the furthest so um you know, I, I think that 
having that discovery, having something to base your 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 go forward positive attitude on is is really important. And I and I think that as we get into tax loss selling, that can be scary for some some investors because you can see some of these stocks lose percentages a day just on tax loss selling. But it really what it is is an opportunity for somebody who's likes a stock, been watching it, that can be their entry point. Well, the other thing is that, um, you know, when I look at uh, both gold and silver, but again, I like the silver's prospects a little bit more. Uh, I think both we're going to react to when the peak of the US dollar comes. That'll be at the takeoff point. But that merger and acquisition side of it that you mentioned, I mean, you guys, for example, had a big discovery up in the Yukon. You know, Alianza got a, you know, I know you have other properties, but you have a big discovery up there. Yeah, and uh, you know we we had a nice high grade silver uh, discovery uh, on a property we call Haldane, which is in historic Keno Hill district. And you know there's been silver mining in Keno for over a hundred years now. Initial discoveries and, and production started in, in the uh, 1800s. So you're looking at a district that's had a tremendous amount of mining history uh, with great expir- exploration potential still. And the U.S.'s largest silver producer, producer Hecla Mining, just took over the only primary silver operator in the dis- district, Alexco Resources. And that, for me, is a very, very positive sign. It, I mean, it's, it's great for us as we're their neighbors. We've got our project adjacent to uh, that Keno Hill mine property. We've got the same style of mineralization. We're, we're targeting the same style of veins. But in the past, investors could look at that area and say, well, these guys aren't doing very well on their own operation. How are you guys going to make a go of it? And now we can look to, to Hecla, who's going to put a cash infusion, which is going to allow this mine to operate at, at full capacity. Uh, and that's just going to be a game changer for the district. And of course, uh, we benefit from that. But it's the whole scenario of this market conditions that allowed that transaction to take place and and, and maybe unlock some value in the Kino district. So as uh, someone with a new discovery up there, in fact, our discovery was announced post the peak silver price of just under $30, $30 in early 2021. We've really been putting out our results in a very negative um, market. So I, again, a great opportunity for, for any of our investors uh, looking to add to their portfolio. You know, I'm thinking back and I have to give my tip of the hat to Greg Weldon, who talked to me about this a few years ago. And he says, you know, if you're keen on something like silver, keen on something like gold, he says, it's better to buy a junior than get an option because the option expires. And he says, and the junior, you know, when they have, you know, the reserves, they've got the the discovery, et cetera. He says, that's just like sort of a really long-term forever option then on a price move. And I love that. I mean, I had not thought of that myself. And I thought that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And so I'm sort of, a, you know, and you alluded to that earlier. I, I look for as we go forward in the next couple of years, I think you're going to see more mergers and acquisitions, you know, uh, especially with the low stock price, bigger companies, as you just mentioned, Hecla can come along and say, hey, it's way cheaper to do. These guys have done all the work. <laughs> you know, so it's to our advantage. I mean, a lot of takeovers take you know, in every industry it happens that way. But I see that as another sort of uh, upward push in the industry after the short term sort of weakness because of tax loss selling. 
Well, and certainly, you know, you get a set of conditions that create a scenario where you have an operating uh, silver producer in in the case of Kino, where their uh, Hecla was able to come in and buy it for less than it would have cost them to buy some other junior companies without the infrastructure in place. Uh, they don't have the mine built, anything like that. Um, this is the this is what happens at, at market bottoms and, and where a tremendous amount of value can be created. And you know, for us at the other end of the spectrum, the early stages of a discovery, it sure makes a big difference for us um, when we can pick up that uptick from the bottom like we are now and produce results into an upticking silver market. You just you get so much more torque uh, on the share price when you're in an environment like that. Uh, let me just ask one more thing here, and that is, uh, it's the same thing that you have to go through, and um, and anybody bigger that's going through is going to develop. But I'm always trying to encourage people to have a proper, realistic time frame, you know, for their investments. So if somebody was going to be in more of the junior mining space, uh, it's certainly applicable also to senior, but junior mining space, how long would you say you should expect to hold something? Oh, you you have to be able to hold it for years. I, I think you have to be looking at at least a two year time horizon. It's uh, it was interesting. I read an article by Rick Rule, um, oh probably two weeks ago, and he said, uh, and and Rick's famous for investing in in the junior space, and he said that of uh, the investments he's made that were ten baggers or better, he held them. I think the number was for five years at least. And every single one of them decreased in value by at least fifty percent during the time he held them, and so yep. that's the that's that's one of the keys to to investing in the junior space is you have to know and understand what the company's trying to accomplish, and you have to give the company your investment time to realize that accomplishment. It we don't we can't do anything in quarters. Uh, we do it in years, and and it's everything from market cycles to permitting to you know seasonality of being able to get on the ground and do exploration. So, you know, if, if you're looking at junior company investments, it it you have to be looking at in excess of a couple of years, absolutely. And that's the kind of conversation you need to have with your financial advisor. I mean, I don't know what's appropriate for everybody, but I do know the kind of questions you should be asking and discussing. Jason, I, I really appreciate you finding time for us. I always love to hear what's going on in the ground, and we'll do it again in the near future, I hope. Jason Weber is President, CEO, Alianza Minerals. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure. Hey, it's time to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now, and you can find him on ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, I want to start with a little something here because I think it made headlines, and that is, hey, who's the most overvalued market in the world? Hey, UBS tells us it's a Canadian market. Yeah, and that is amazing because UBS uh, has published this, what they call a global real estate bubble index, and they've been doing it for years. And the winner was always Hong Kong, or it was London, or something. But guess the winner now is Toronto. And Vancouver <laughs> is not too far behind because we're in number six. We're just almost at par with Hong Kong. So when you take a look at the top 25 cities, if you go to UBS and take a look at their graph, it's kind of mind-boggling which cities are, have gone totally wild and which city have sort of gone wild because even Madrid or San Francisco 
uh, in the index. Well, it's interesting also, though, that, uh, you know, I've read several things internationally because, of course, real estate's a big story. I mean, I'm looking at that 30-year mortgage rate in the States, nearly 7% now, highest in 20 years. You know, their goal is to shut their market down. I think they probably accomplished it by now, uh, you know, or certainly had a huge impact. But, you know, all those stories are talking about which markets are most vulnerable to the largest cr- uh, price decrease. So it did catch my eye when I see, hey, Toronto topped that list. Well, the interesting thing, you made an absolute astounding point because the interest rates in Toronto have already started to bite. And as you know how we are with numbers, we quote whatever numbers we need. There's lies, damn lies, and statistics said Mark Twain, right? And we don't know what we're looking at. But certainly in Toronto, you and I talked about it last week. The average single-family home price since February or March, both of those months, we're down 30%, so they're probably no longer our number one, right? Yeah, but right. If you look, but if you look at the Canadian Real Estate Association, which, by the way, they're all great organizations. It's just what they report. You have to be very careful to understand what they report. If they report a year over year, for instance, Toronto year over year in one price range, they're up 1%, and another it's down 4%. Well, reality is it's down 30%, right? So, But you have to look at this February. And certainly at Osbus, that's what I try to do, keep the number relevant to an investor that's in this market now. And that's why you always have to look at your specific market, whether it's Toronto or whether it's BC. Well, and your point's so well taken. I mean, what's our what's our starting point? I mean, we could we could start quoting numbers from 1910 and say the market's up 1,712 <laughs> percent, but it's useless to us, right? I yeah. mean, and that's that's the point you're making. But yeah, I still think the most relevant is to see what's been happening in the market in the last seven months since interest rates started to rise, March first. Uh, of this year. That's when we started to get the bang up in interest rates. And yeah, it's had a dramatic effect on both uh, activity and of course, pricing. And and yes, and I, I've heard those same pricing things that I thought were very confusing for the public. Because if you go back and measure a year or two years, yeah, I mean, the prices, uh, you know, could be up over the last year and still net up significantly over two years. But uh, I still think we want to know what the condition of the market is now. And I yes. think that's much more appropriate to go from February or March. Well, and the important thing is, what is it now in your area? Particularly, mm-hmm. like the British Columbia Real Estate Association is an absolute marvelous website for, for details of every market in British Columbia. And of course, what they report is absolutely correct. They reported prices in BC to be higher at, by 2%, around 920,000. And that's an absolute correct number. But if you just look at that, you feel uncomfortable, it's higher. But if you're in Chilliwack, prices are actually down. 20%, a single-family home in Surrey is down 25%, a single-family home in Vancouver is down 9 and condos are down 14%. So you have to look at what area am I looking at? Am I looking at Powell River or Vancouver Island or, or Kamloops or whatever? And look there in that specific area that you're interested in. Well, it's always interesting, too. It seems like the outlier is happening in Alberta thanks to a resilient uh, you know, energy sector, that they're attracting people again. People are moving into the province. Uh, they start from a much lower ba- base, you know, as we've done that before compared to what you get in Toronto, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, compared to Calgary or Edmonton and, and some of the outlying areas. But you, you see that sort of, uh, that's another reason that you've got to definitely go regional because you sure can't look at the Canadian numbers because they're not giving you an indication of what's going on in the Calgary, Edmonton markets. It just reflects perhaps the economy, but a specific area has specific problems. I mean, now, of course, we also have a a new world where Wall Street Journal uh, 
has a big headline saying that Americans like Whistler not just as a holiday home, but as a resident. Wow. Yes. I, I, I mean, that. but what's so interesting for me coming at it from sort of that economic view is, you know, again, to reemphasize for people, when you've got a falling currency and we're not talking a lot about it, we've been talking, of course, about inflation, the cost of living, talking about interest rates. Well, in the meantime, the Canadian dollars, as Victor's been chronicling for us, has taken a dive uh, down into that 72 cent range. Well, Man, we just put all that real estate, whether it's Whistler or Vancouver or, or, or Calgary, all on sale. And of course, Whistler is very unique with its properties uh, in terms of a, a resort uh, and especially a rated resort so high up uh, from any resort in the world. But man, I got to think that low Canadian dollar, which puts it on sale for Americans, has got to be been part of that story. Well, and, and they left after we brought in a foreign buyers tax, and have, although that originally did not apply to Whistler at all, but they left through COVID, but now they're back. Look, our resort has some 8,000 acres of, of terrain to ski. It's North America's largest resort. We had the 2010 Olympics. But the key also was that in 2016, Whale Resorts bought it, and now Whistler became this larger North American uh, key mm-hmm. chain of resorts. But look, luxury condo started a million five, and chalet is at 2.1 to 14 million, and there's a real jewel available at 39 million dollars. <laughs> oh, so, sorry, that's too bad. I haven't got my allowance yet, so I'll have to give that one a miss. 39 million Canadian. That's that's probably about 28 million U.S. But that could be changing before you even hear this. <laughs> but that's your point. Your point is exactly right because a million U.S. today is probably a million for a Canadian. Right? So yeah. I have much more buying power. But the story uh, up at, at the Wall Street Journal just simply quotes a lot of people from Seattle, a lot of people from all over the United States. You know what? There's great skiing here, but there's also great summer places. I mean, look, Whistler now has probably the, the finest uh, walking areas, golf courses as well. So it's an all year round thing. Anyhow, the only thing we don't know for sure exactly how the foreign buyers uh, thing applies at Whistler. I mean, Believe it or not, Americans are foreigners. Well, Ozzy, I know you'll be keeping your eye on what's going on on that side of the investment market, people, if they're foreign buyers, if there's a carve out, et cetera. But in the meantime, I invite people to go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. And now I know that your uh, Ozbuzz report comes out once a month. When's the next one? Next one is actually out this weekend. We're running a little late, but I wanted to make sure we had all the numbers. And of course, we are forecasting on what uh, the higher interest rates uh, can mean for the future. All sorts of stuff. No shortage of things to think about. Ozzy, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. And remember something. I love my snacks. And listen, listen, if we're not meant to have midnight snacks, why is there a light in the fridge? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. And it's so important to get the perspective of Victor Adair because he's a professional trader. He's there. It's not just talk. It's not theory. It's what's actually happening. So, Vic, this week, I mean, obviously, it had to kick off as everybody for uh, two weeks have been saying, wait till you get the U.S. inflation number because that's going to tell the Fed what to do going forward. Well, we got that number. Yeah, and it wasn't pretty, honestly. Uh, The number was released at 5.30 in the morning uh, Thursday. That's Vancouver time. Uh, It showed inflation hotter than the market was expecting. So what immediately happened 
And I mean immediately, like in moments, uh, the, the stock market dove, and that's the futures market that is open at that time of the day. The U.S. dollar charged higher against everything else. And uh, the bond yields rose, and that's just to be expected. And then the strangest thing happened, Mike, when we opened the floor session, uh, like an hour later, the market kind of traded around those low levels. And then we had the Dow rally the equivalent of about 18 or 1900 points through the course of the day. So I, I think a lot of that was positioning where people kind of had got trapped looking because the, the sentiment has been incredibly negative here in the last couple of weeks and building. But it, it's just, it goes to show you there's not a lot of liquidity in the market. So when suddenly there's some bidding going on and who knows why, and you, you can't wait around. So people that were short had to scramble. It's just the volatility has been amazing here across assets. I think it's still a tough market. You know, you really would have to, if you, you'd have to have a good story as to why you're a buyer here. But uh, the, the, the short-term volatility just makes it very difficult to trade. Just to reemphasize that when people play the market to go down and they decide to close out the position, that gets them buying and it's that buying pressure. And when you see, as Vic says, such abrupt moves, you know, there's liquidity problems. There's just not a lot of people involved. And clearly there's, you know, something structural. People are buying to close out their position and others would be uh, positive, Vic, because of course the big story you've been talking about is everybody sitting there going, when is the Fed going to change its mind uh, called the pivot? You know, when it's going to stop raising interest rates? Well, what message did you get after watching not just the markets, though? I mean, watching the Fed's decision. I mean, what do you think? What do you see? What does the market see coming in terms of interest rates in November and uh, December? They meet again. Well, I think the, the market's expecting it's a virtual certainty that we're going to have a, a 75 basis point bump uh, higher in November and in December, and more to come uh, in the early part of next year, uh, with a terminal rate getting to around 5% by, by March. But in terms of that, uh, I have been thinking, you know, the, the, the primary driver, as I've been saying, is the expectation as to whether or not the Fed's going to remain aggressive. Okay, what would make them start to change their mind? Basically, a couple of things. Uh, if we started to see unemployment rise, if we started to see, you know, retail sales falling off like crazy, uh, if we started to, let's say, get rumors or, or worse than rumors uh, uh, to the effect that something was breaking, like we just saw in the UK, where the pension fund industry was having a freak out and the Bank of England had to reverse their course and come in and start buying bonds to try to, to save the market. So I think the market is figuring you know, at some point here, they're going to push it so far that, you know, something bad is going to happen. And then they're going to have to backpedal like crazy. So if you can get in front of that market, or you certainly don't want to be short if they have a pivot. So, you know, it's kind of a guessing game that way. And it's a guessing game in, in a dark room. <laughs> yeah, that's well put. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to also see with the response coming out of the Bank of England, and I think it's uh, so notable. Their pensions were in tremendous problems. They were leveraged. In other words, they had borrowed money. So let's say they put five bucks down on a $100 bond, and because interest rates rise, 
the bonds dropped a lot more than five bucks. So they got zip, Zippo, you know, at that point. I mean, it's more sophisticated than that, but that's the gist of what's happening. As interest rates rise, the value of bonds drops. Well, some people have borrowed money to be in the bonds. Uh, so pension funds come into play. But here's my point. Bank of England's response, let's create more cash. You know, let's create 60 uh, billion out of nowhere. I think that's going to be the response. That's the inflationary story. That's the devaluation of paper currency story as we go forward. Yeah, I think the Bank of England decided they had to step in. You know, ultimately, the central bank is called the buyer of last resort. When the shit's hitting the fan, uh, they've got to be there to protect the integrity of the market and so on. And if they're not, then, you know, we don't even want to think about that. Mike, uh, in other markets here, I mean, we had the Japanese uh, government intervene in the market two weeks ago to support the yen, which is at a 24-year low. And of course, markets have tested that. The yen has gone to a new low uh, without the bank, uh, I should say the government stepping in to try to defend the currency. Um, the Canadian dollar, Canadian dollars down five cents or so from 77 to 72 just in the last month. And I don't think we've heard much talking about that. I mean, it's kind of a almost like a background issue, even though it's really important to us. Yeah, I mean, your point's so well taken. I mean, it is incredible. I mean, I understand why. I mean, people are more worried about interest rates, uh, you know, their cost of living's more top of mind, what they're paying at the gas pump, et cetera. But here, that's a big story. We just lost over 5%, even more, it's probably like 6 7% in a month of our purchasing power internationally against the US dollar. That's what we're talking about. So my trip to the US, if I was planning one, eh, maybe I'll put it off. You know, if we're importing something from the US, ah, eh, maybe we'll put it off. So that's another one. And I just look at individuals getting pounded in the head, whether it's their cost of their groceries, the cost of their gasoline, the decline in their home value, uh, rising interest rates on the money they were encouraged to borrow. The government wanted us to borrow. The Bank of Canada wanted it. And now we get the Canadian dollar on top of it. That's the mishmash that I think people are having to survive here. Hey, there is a win in the currency side. And I was thinking about this. Instead of going south to the United States for your winter vacation, Go down to New Zealand or Australia, and I'll tell you why. I mean, the Canadian dollar is down 10% roughly from last year's highs to where it is now against the U.S. dollar. But the Australian dollar and the New Zealand uh, dollar are down 20%. So, you know, your Canadian dollar may go some distance further down under. Well, well, while we're being travel agents here, uh, <laughs> let's really go to town and get them to visit uh, Turkey or Argentina or, <laughs> or Ecuador. Oh my gosh, Zimbabwe's free. And you can actually purchase most of Venezuela for a paycheck, you know, so, <laughs> but your point's well taken. It's all, you know, in the world of currencies, we measure against the US dollar, but others are weakened. Vic, as I say, I can know, I don't know how you're keeping up with all that's doing, but you're doing a great job for us in doing it. And uh, I'll invite people to go to victoradare.ca victoradare.ca don't miss it lots of great information lots of great charts vic thank you hey mike always a pleasure talking with you time now for this week's goofy award and i gotta tell you it's a long one because i think it's been so underreported in the mainstream media of course there are exceptions and it comes, you know, as we've got the opening of the Public Order Emergency Commission. That's the former title of the Truckers' Convoy Inquiry. Emphasis on why the government bypassed Parliament 
and invoke the Emergencies Act. What's going to be interesting is eight cabinet ministers are going to be questioned under oath. Now, according to former Solicitor General Perrin Beatty, this is the person who wrote the Emergencies Act in 1998. He says in quotes, it's designed to be used when there's no other legal authority available. The issue is not whether it helped the police, but whether the powers they already had could have resolved the problem. The concern isn't necessity or is necessity, not efficiency. Well, come on, on that score, we already know the government's rationale for, I think, one of the greatest or the greatest assaults on individual rights and freedoms, including the incredible, unprecedented freezing of bank accounts of people not charged with anything other than they supported the convoy. But I think their position from the government is already on shaky grounds. I mean, we know that despite public safety minister Mandacino's claim, 11 different occasions that the cabinet was acting on police advice with statements like, I made this on February 28th. We had to invoke the Emergencies Act, and we did so on the basis of nonpartisan professional advice from law enforcement. He, I mean, he just continued this on April 28th. It was only after we got advice from law enforcement that we invoked the Emergencies Act. Well, you know what? There was no request by the Ottawa police or the RCMP. I mean, Brenda Lucky, who's the RCMP commissioner, stated this is uh, when they had the special joint committee on the declaration of the emergency. She said that the RCMP never even considered asking for the Emergencies Act. The Ottawa police chief at the time, Peter Slawley, stated, I did not make that request. I'm not aware of anyone else in the Ottawa police service who did. Well, you know what? In the real world, Mendocino's claims are called lies. But the goofy part is how much of the government's anti-COVID narrative turned out to be false. For example, <clears throat> we had Attorney General David Lametti. He admitted to relying on, false, on a false story peddled by the CBC. You heard it. The convoy was being primarily financed by foreign money. The CBC claimed to have done extensive research, but later admitted, actually, they'd done none. This week, the CBC, this week, the CBC ombudsman came down hard on the public broadcaster for making up, completely making up, unsupported, the suggestion of Russian interference. And Lametti himself, well, he jumped into the witch hunt, claiming without any evidence that the convoy was being financed by Trump supporters. As I said, so much of the reporting of the truckers' convoy proved to be false. How about this? Including reports that attributed arson at an Ottawa apartment, including the chaining of doors to prevent occupants from leaving. They blamed members, or the media and politicians blamed members of the truckers' convoy, which the Ottawa police said were absolutely false. In fact, the arsonate had no connection to the convoy and they've been arrested. How about this? You remember the outrage over the woman dancing on the tomb of the unknown soldier? Again, they made a whole lot about that. Problem is that the Ottawa police found that the woman had no connection to the convoy. In a secret memo, again, this week, by Blacklock's reporter, who've done a tremendous job on this file, they discounted the Prime Minister's claim that the protests were Nazi sympathizers. CISA's claimed in quotes, stated in quotes, a small number of individuals displayed handwritten statements or images on their flags in an attempt to focus their message. Specifically, several added a swastika to their flag, but not necessarily to self-identify as Nazis, but to imply the prime minister and the federal government are acting like Nazis by imposing public health 
mandates. You know, funny how that obvious understanding seemed to be over the heads of so many reporting. As the memo from Canada's top, this is Canada's top security agency, CSIS, stated one swastika flag spotted outside Parliament was offensive, but not representative protests who considered themselves patriotic Canadians, this is in the words of CSIS, patriotic Canadians standing up for their democratic rights. The memo went on to state freedom of expression is constitutionally protected in Canada. Hey, how about that firearms rationale, a story perpetrated by many in the media? Well, you know what? We knew that was false. March 24th testimony at the Commons Public Safety Committee, Ottawa police acknowledged there were neither loaded shotguns nor firearms of any kind found inside Freedom Convoy trucks parked at Parliament. We got data released again this week. Also shows that the government's wildly overestimated the losses, by the way. They said, hey, the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge costing us $390 million per day, when in fact, they're more in the neighborhood of $45 million. Hey, it was the same with the losses. You heard about this, that Ottawa businesses in the downtown core were suffering. Well, the government set aside $2.5 million to compensate 240 business owners. You know what? Only 60 applied. Total payments, 462000 And one final aspect that I can hardly wait to hear the government explain. The CBC reported that they had invoked the Emergency Act, but after an agreement had already been reached between the City of Ottawa and the convoy organizers for truckers. To leave, already negotiated, they were going to leave the city's residential streets. And you know what? The bottom line is this. You, me, the rest of the public were manipulated even lied to in order to discredit the convoy. Now, I know some people will say that's okay, but others like me will recognize it as a pattern of deceit that reflects a deep disrespect for all of us. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Just a reminder, I do appreciate when you share the information you're hearing on Money Talks or Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I mean, more examples this week, hearing about, for example, the interest that we're going to pay on the federal debt has jumped from about 26, 27 million into the 31, 32 billion mark. I said 26, 27 billion to the 31, 32 billion dollar mark. I think that's important for people to understand, but there's so much more. So I do appreciate when you share uh, to friends, family, listen to Money Talks. Also visit, visit us though at mikesmoneytalks.ca. And as you heard earlier with Paul Beatty, I am looking forward to the World Outlook Conference. Man, we've got a great environment to share some information and advice with. Thanks for listening. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.